You, you may be seated. My name is Ethan Fordham. I serve as an elder here at Renovation Church. I'm just grateful to have each and every one of you here with us this morning and to sing together, right? Oh, and all oh, kids, you could be dismissed. I don't mean to forget. But just grateful, so grateful to hear your voices this morning, right? Always thinking about what the Lord says in Ephesians and in, in, uh, in, Col- uh, in Colossians about singing to one another, right? Singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So just grateful that we can preach the gospel together to one another in the music that we sing. Credentials. A credential is defined as a qualification, achievement, personal quality, or aspect of a person's background, typically when used to indicate that they are suitable for something. Suitable for something. We might think of the ever-elusive doors in all of the restaurants and anywhere we go that say, staff only, employees only. What's behind that magical door? I don't know. I don't have the credentials to get through that door. We might think of something a little more serious, like academic credentials, right? You got to do the work to get the PhD, to earn the office, to earn that academic chair. You got to have the right credentials. Or we might even think in a, in a marriage, right? You meet the right spouse, you get married, and you have credentials on that finger. They get you access in a way that other people don't get access to the person that you love most in your life. Credentials. Credentials grant access. Sometimes folks think of Christianity this way as well, right? Think others, uh, some people say that they got a Sorry, things are falling apart. Some people think of Christianity this way, right? They got to have the right credentials to meet with God, right? Like I got to get my stuff together before I can go to church, right? I have to attain some kind of personal holiness. I got to be credentialed. Or others, others joke and they're like, you know, I can't go to church. I'm going to get struck by lightning if I walk in those doors, Right? They think they have the opposite, opposing credentials. Some people think God is interested in the super spiritual people, right? The super spiritual credentialed individuals. Those are the people who get to enjoy God, enjoy his presence. But is this right? Is this right? It is the right people with the right credentials that get to enjoy where God is. But the question we're going to ask this morning, the question we're asking, is what what are the credentials that grant access to the kingdom of God? So if you would please open your scriptures with me this morning. 
to Matthew chapter 21. We're looking at verses 28 through 32. It'll be up on the screen. Please open your Bible. If you need a Bible or you know someone that needs a Bible, there are Bibles in the back for free. Please, that is our gift to you or to anyone that you know. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. This is the word of God. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did, not change, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Friends, this is the word of God and all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come to you. And Lord, out of your light, God, give us light. Out of your abundant goodness, bless us in knowledge and with wisdom. Lord, change us and we would be changed. Open our minds and our eyes to your word. We ask this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So in our previous context, if you remember from last week, the chief priests and the elders went up to Jesus and they asked him about his credentials. Hey, upon what authority do you say the things and do the things that you do? Well, Jesus doesn't answer their question. He, he asks another question. He says, I'll answer your question, but I'm, I'm going to ask you about someone else's credentials. John the Baptist, did his, his baptism, was it from heaven or was it from man? Well, they refused to answer. They refused to answer because if they said that it was from heaven, that meant that they would have had to have accepted Jesus' credentials, that what he did and said was right. But it doesn't, the interaction doesn't stop there. Jesus, after they refuse to answer, Jesus follows it up with another question. And this question comes in the form of a parable, right? A parable. It's a story with a punchline. A parable. A parable of a father who goes to his two sons. We see that he goes to his first son. He says, there's, son, there, there's work to be done. Go into the vineyard and go to work. But the son says, he will not. Right? I'm sure some of the parents out there maybe can relate with this. Hey, go clean your room. Mm, no. No. Right? But here, right, the son isn't just like, nah. It's actually, a, it's a really, it's a rude refusal. 
The son is rude. He refuses. I will not. I will not go to work. The first son rebuffs the command with a rude refusal. But we read that afterward, he changed his mind and went to work. Oh, that's unexpected. Okay, he went to work. Excellent. He was rebellious in his words, but he came, became obedient, submissive in his actions. But we read that the father does go to the other son, probably because he's trying to get somebody to pick up the slack, right? So he goes to the other son, and lo and behold, this son has a much more favorable response. He's reverential. He's honorable in his response. He says, sir, I go. It's interesting, this word sir, the Greek word is lord, master. It's a sign of reverence. It's a, it's a, a word of recognition of someone's authority and of submission to that authority. With his words, he recognizes this. And he says, okay, I'll go. Ooh, yes, excellent. Reverential, honorable. This is very good, right? Now we're getting things done. Not exactly. After he said he would go to work, the outstanding, reverential, and respectful son did not go to work. He did not go. Right? He nods and smiles until the father walks away. And he does nothing. This son had all the appearance of respectful obedience, but the result was dishonorable disobedience. This also is unexpected. Two sons, two different responses, and two very different actions. So Jesus asks the question, the all-important question, which of the two did the will of the Father? The chief priests and elders of the temple answer, right? And their response is, the first. Like, duh, of course. Like, yeah, he was rude at first, but then he went. The request was for work, and he's the one who accomplished the work. He's the one who went. It's obvious, right? Now, I don't know what's going on in their minds, if they know what's going on, right? If they know that the chief priests and the elders, they answer this question rightly. Jesus isn't just like asking a question like, or, or telling a story about three principles for good work ethic, right? There's a deeper meaning to this parable. And Jesus goes on to tell us what it is. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Whoa, hold up. What do you mean? Hang on a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to go into the kingdom of God before us? Right? The tax collectors, they were extortioners. They took advantage of the people, right? They took and they farmed taxes. They, they pulled a, you know, they took a little off the top, 
for themselves. And not only that, but they were betrayers, right? They, they worked for the Roman government against their own people. And the prostitutes, right? Those who lived in sexually illicit behavior. These people, these people are getting into the kingdom of God before us, the religious leaders. How is this possible? If anything, what are their credentials? If anything, they have credentials for another place. How is it that they get there before us? The chief priests, right? The ones who literally led the nation in worship in the temple. That's no small task. And I'm just like a pastor of a little tiny church here. The nation of Israel was huge and it was temple worship. That's big, right? You would assume much from them. I can't even imagine. And then the, the elders, the local spiritual men, the mature men, those who led the communities in virtue. How is this possible? The chief priests and the elders in Israel, these are righteous dudes, right? Credentialed. If anybody's getting into the kingdom, it's them, right? Not according to Jesus. He says, no. These sinners will get into the kingdom before these righteous people. This is a shocking reversal, right? This is like a twist ending. This is a, what is happening right now? How is this possible? This goes against all sensibility. Why? Why do the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom before the religious leaders? What kind of credentials could they possibly have? Jesus gives us the reason. He starts this way. He says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Right? John came preaching. He called people to repentance. We see Matthew in Matthew chapter 3, right? Look at, what is that? Was that a decade ago? Right? Matthew chapter 3, when the ministry of John the Baptist started and he comes out of the wilderness proclaiming to the nation of Israel. And we read that he called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. He told them not to assume that they were in right standing with the Lord simply because they were physical offspring of Abraham. He called them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, did they do that? Did they do that? Well, according to Jesus, right here in our passage, they did not do that. He says, you did not believe John. You just didn't believe him. There was no change of mind, and therefore there was no repentance. But, on the other hand, we read in Luke's account of John interacting with the sinners. We hear, and the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to him 
to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Based on this passage as well, we can assume that the prostitutes came to him and also asked, What should we do? John knows what these people are up to. He knows the sins that they're commonly guilty of. And he calls them. He says, stop doing that. Repent and pursue another way. And this is what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to these actual events and the contrasting reactions between these two sets of people. So what, what is the contrast? Jesus goes on and he says, right, starting in the same verse, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are the first son. They're the first son who did the will of the father. It, they did the will of the father in that they believed John. John came into the way of righteousness. He came proclaiming repentance. And these people, the lowest of the low in this society, believed John. They heard his words and they responded. And their belief, right, they believed, was followed up with repentance. They turned from their former way of life, right? They believed, and by implication in the parable, it says they changed their minds. They changed their minds. They repented. They repented. Repentance is kind of a loaded term, isn't it? Especially in today's world. It seems kind of archaic, right? We have a lot of assumptions about what repentance means, right? Repentance is not a heavy-handed sentiment where someone is always looking over your shoulder, breathing down your neck, and threatening you. Repent or else, right? It's not always the dudes with the sandwich boards on the corner. Repentance is, though, an awareness of personal sin, of my own sin, that we are responsible before a holy God for the evil we do and the good that we leave undone. And it's being sorry for offending God in those ways. Repentance is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, oh, like, I'll just sin, but I'm good. Like, I can just ask Jesus for forgiveness later. And he, he just, it's like Jesus is under my obligation, right? He has no choice. He has to forgive me. Wrong. John Gill, a Baptist theologian, describes a repentant person this way. He says, a penitent sinner has another notion than he had. Another notion of sin 
than he had before. It was a sweet morsel, now a bitter and evil thing. Before, his heart was bent upon it. Now, determined through divine grace to forsake it and cleave to the Lord with full purpose of heart. Repentance is a hatred and a forsaking of sin. And through the real struggle, a desire to pursue a new life, a living way. Repentance is not an archaic word where there's just a better one to replace it with, right? Like, it's not outlived its purpose. There isn't a nicer or an easier word to, to use. Repentance is the word God gives us to use. This is what repentance is like, friends. This is what it's like. This is its nature. I mean, you might hear what I'm saying about repentance and think, I don't know how to, if I'm capable of living through those things, right? Like, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. For a long time, your whole life. You think, I still struggle with sin. I got sinned on the way here this morning. I'm here and I'm, I'm torn up. I feel tormented by the sin in my life. How do I know if my repentance is good enough? Or maybe you're here and you're a new Christian and you have sin in your life and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't know what to do with this sin. What are we supposed to do? What? How are we supposed to get on in this repentant life? Friends, repentance is first And foremost, before any activity on our part, a gift of God given to believers through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who first caused us to be roused, to rise up in the statement, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. Forgive me, Lord, please. The Spirit of God is the one who reveals the wickedness of our sin to us. He's the one who puts new desires in place of the old desires. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift of God given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all those who receive the gift of repentance receive the ongoing help of the Holy Spirit to live a repentant life. Ongoing. He doesn't just help us repent once. He helps us repent always. To continue to repent all the days of our lives. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to sin. He brings about conviction for it. He gives us the strength to walk in the newness of life. He continually changes our desires so that we delight in goodness. So if you're here today and asking, what are you supposed to do with your sin, the sin in your life? Well, it's repent. It's change your mind. 
It's walk in another direction. It's leave it behind. Forsake it. Kill it. Mortify it. Destroy it. But you're here and you're like, Ethan, you just said it's a gift of the Spirit, that the Spirit's the one who rots it in me. What am I supposed to do? How do I get at this repentance? Right? The sin is always there. It's always around the corner. It's always waiting to captivate you in your thoughts, in your actions, when you're in public, when you're in private. What am I supposed to do to leave behind this old life and pursue a new one? How do I get repentance? Friends, repentance, because it's a gift, and it's a good gift, and it comes from the God who is goodness himself. And what does a good God delight to do but to give to his children good things when they ask for it? Friends, pray for repentance. Pray that the Spirit would give the thing that he delights to give. I can't help but think of St. Augustine in the 4th century. He says, Lord, command what you will and will what you command. Give me the actual desire. Give me the actual. Give me exactly what you require of me that I might walk in it in faithfulness. Friends, pray for it. Ask the Holy Spirit to be continually repentant and confessing, confessing of sins. Right? Do you have bitterness in your marriage? Ask for the desire to repent of bitterness in order to pursue peace and reconciliation. Are you struggling with lust in your thoughts? And are you falling with your internet use? Ask for help to repent of lust and the things that you do with your hands that you might pursue holiness. Are you angry with your coworkers, maybe? Ask for help to repent of anger and to show the love of Christ in service to them. Friends, pray. Pray for repentance. But also recognize that the Lord God has designed His church, His Christian community, His people, to function in such a way that we are meant to be in each other's lives. To encourage one another's repentance. Not just the one time I'm sorry, but to walk in the follow-through. To walk repentantly each and every day. We need each other. We need each other's help to repent. So who can you help in this church? What church member can you be in relationship with to help walk and live a life of repentance? Who can you ask to help you walk in a life of repentance? Friends, not only this, but even when we come together week in and week out, what do we do? What's one of the staples, one of the elements, one of the hallmarks of our worship service? It's a confession of sin. It's a repenting. It's a being honest about sin. 
and asking for forgiveness. That's meant to create that pattern in your life. Our liturgy does that. It creates a pattern of repentance and asking for forgiveness and awaiting those faithful gospel promises and hope. Don't neglect that habit in your life, the coming in to this place week in and week out and how that's going to shape the Monday through Saturday. These are ways, friends, that we can live in this. And it provides great hope. Great hope for sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes. For sinners like us. I appreciate the way J.C. Ryle put it. The way he describes this hope. He said, let it be a settled principle in our Christianity that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely willing to receive penitent sinners. It matters nothing what a man has been in time past. Does he repent and come to Christ? Then the old things are passed away and all things are become new. Do you hear that? Do you hear that hope this morning? as you struggle with sin, but you continue to repent, that God, our God and Father, is infinitely willing to welcome us into his arms because of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this just gets at the other half of repentance, right? We read that they believed and changed their minds. Belief, faith, is the other half of repentance. It's the other side of the coin, and in this context, right, John came preaching repentance. But he came as the forerunner of another. He came to direct others to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Truly repentant sinners know their need for forgiveness. And they go to the only one who has secured it. As we repent, we go to Jesus. And we know that in his abundant grace and forgiveness, he welcomes us. And we know that we're welcomed to the Father because the Father infinitely loves his own Son and loves those whom the Son has saved. We can go to God. Friends, true belief leads to true repentance. Always look to Jesus in your repentance, in your belief knowing that as you repent, he's going to welcome you in. But I started this off talking about a contrast, didn't I? What of the religious leaders? What is the difference between them? What about the ones you would expect to have the right credentials? Jesus goes on, he says, And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds. And believe him. The religious leaders did not believe John. And they did not repent. We see, right, he says, even when you saw it. He asked the question, saw what? What did they see that did not cause them to repent? It was the belief in the repentance of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It was their renewed lives 
It was that they were one way then, and they, they became new people. Even when they saw such clear evidence, they did not change their minds. Why? Because they didn't like what John had to say, and they didn't like the one that he pointed to. They did not like Jesus, right? They refused to answer because admitting to John, to Jesus, sorry, that John's baptism was from heaven, that his teaching was from heaven, would implicate them in their unbelief. And they would have been found to be disobedient to God. And they would have had to recognize the credentials of Christ, the one to whom John ultimately pointed. But they did not. They didn't believe John. They didn't repent of their sins. And they were Jesus' enemies all the days of his ministry. The, rich, the, the religious leaders, those who are credentialed, turns out, did not have the right credentials to enter the kingdom of God. It does not matter how righteous one thinks they are, how advanced in piety or religion or good works and good deeds. God welcomes the believing and repentant, not the self-righteous. This is both a warning and an invitation. We ought not to fool ourselves, to think that any good work on our part is earning us any access into the kingdom of God, that any good work is a credential before almighty, holy God. Isn't that the difference between Christianity and so many other religions? They go to God with something. We go to God with absolutely nothing. We have nothing to offer him. We don't put God in our debt. Because as a holy and righteous God, he must punish sin. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or you've thought to yourself, I've never had the need to repent. Friends, we all have the need to repent. But the gospel hope is that the repentant are welcomed into his kingdom. If you're here today and you are a Christian, the Lord has granted you faith and repentance, and you are believing and bearing fruit in repentance, you have great hope that it's the Lord who has begun a good work in you is going to bring it about to completion. Why? Because Jesus' good works outpace ours. Because Jesus is the righteous one when we are not. We often think, right, like, maybe you've heard this illustration. I feel like I've heard it a thousand times. But you ask the question, when you get up to heaven, right, and God says, why should I let you in? Right? It's basically asking for credentials. It's a question of, you know, authorization of, you know, why should you be granted access? No one can say, because of my good works. No one. 
the only right response. When we stand before God in that day, our only credential is that I have only believed in Jesus and recognized my deepest need, that I am a sinner, and that I, am, I was always in my life continually in need of repentance and forgiveness. Why should you let me in? You shouldn't. But only because of Jesus will you. That's the only credential. The only credential. Friends, belief in Christ and repentance towards sin are all the credential you need to enter the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray just in closing. It's a specific prayer. If you don't have this, I highly recommend it. It's called the Valley of Vision. It's just a collection of prayers. There's a prayer in here that reflects a repentant heart. And as I pray it, let's all be praying it together, listening, asking God for the kind of repentance he requires. Amen? Let's pray. God of grace, you have put our sin on our substitute Jesus, and you have put his righteousness on our souls. Clothe us with the bridegroom's robes. Deck us with jewels of holiness. But Lord, in our Christian walk, we are still in rags. Our best prayers, Lord, are stained with sin. Our tears are still impure. Our confessions of wrong still have sin in them. Lord, even as we receive your spirit, God, we are still selfish. Lord, we need to repent of even our repentance. Lord, we need our tears to be washed. God, we have no robe to bring to cover our sins and no loom to weave our own righteousness. God, we are always standing clothed in filthy garments and by grace are always receiving change of garments. For you do always justify the ungodly. We are always going into a far country and always returning home as a prodigal son. Always saying, Father, forgive me. And you are always bringing forth the best robe. Lord God, every morning let us wear it and every evening return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wounded in death in it. Stand before your great white throne of judgment in it and enter into heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant us never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, 
the exceeding beauty of holiness and the exceeding wonder of grace. Lord God, grant to us repentance always as we leave this place. We pray to the honor and the glory and the praise of your name. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, amen.